Thanks so much, Joel and Scott. I um, enjoyed so much working with these guys over the years at Whittier Hills, and I'm so grateful that God has been using them these last uh, several years with you here. Uh, really great for me to be back with you. Um, I'm the worship pastor at Whittier Hills campus for uh, for Redemption Hill, and uh, so some of you I've known for a lot of years, and some of you are new faces to me, but really enjoyable for me to be among you and hear your voices singing this morning. Um, real privilege for me to be able to come and to speak in this uh, vision series for you. I, I'm going to be sharing with you something today that is actually um, pretty fresh on my heart. Um, really encouraged about what God is doing in my life, and I'm just eager to, to share it with you this morning. Um, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, this morning I am just so grateful for our La Havre campus, for these dear people that you have called to yourself, that you uh, have brought into community here. You are growing by your word and by your spirit. Um, Father, I pray that today your word would come alive. I pray that you would be uh, very apparently with us today. Would you draw our hearts to you? Would we uh, pant after the things that are dear to your heart? Would we hunger for time with you, time with your truth? And Father, I pray that this morning would be an encouraging, perhaps even inspiring time of seeking you together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, imagine that you are going out to lunch with a friend today, and at lunch the friend looks you straight in the eye and asks you a question says, so how is your Bible reading plan going lately? How interested are you in engaging that conversation? Anybody feeling a little bit awkward? Uh, could we talk about something else, perhaps? Um, can you remember a time in your life where time in the Word was really a delight? When you... When you think about a time in your life when you spent time in the Word, that time just seemed to pass by, you might overstay your, your plans, actually, and realize, oh, no, I need to stop reading. I need to get on to some other things. Do you remember a time when God's Word seemed like a gift to you? Like, this is a gift from your Heavenly Father. And yet, has there been a time, perhaps in recent years, where maybe that delight has moved more to duty? or the enjoyment has moved more to drudgery or perhaps uh, something that's, that's hard work or even neglect. Um, I want to share you, with you just a little bit about my background. I remember the very first Bible that I was given. I was in first grade. My first grade Sunday school teacher gave me my Bible, put my name in it. I was so impressed. It was dedicated by a king, um, that, which meant there were some words that I'd never heard before that were in it, and uh, it was like, we're, we're, we're with, uh, uh, delightest thou in thy precepts. You know, I didn't always understandeth what was being spoken in there, but it was my Bible, and it had my name on it. A few years later, I was given a new translation that was, was hot at the time. It was called the New American Standard Bible, and that was much more readable for me. And Along the way, I'd heard my dad share that when he was a fifth grader, he'd read through the Bible all the way cover to cover, 
So I just kind of filed that, and I thought, okay, that's what I'll do in fifth grade, and got to fifth grade, and didn't know that was weird. So I just read all the way through, cover to cover, so the preface, the table of contents, the books of the Bible, all the books, and the maps at the end. And um, so that was, that was fifth grade, and it was like, hey, this is cool. I like the Bible. And uh, a few years goes by, and our church uh, joined this campaign for what was new at the time. It was the one-year Bible. And this had, you know, portions of Old Testament, portions of New Testament, Psalms, and, and, a, and some Proverbs that you read every day. It was like, I haven't read the Bible for a while, and I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and try that again, and did that again, and that was great. Um, went to high school, and... I was just so taken in by my youth pastor. Whatever he said was golden. And when he began to teach the book of Proverbs, that was, he, he, said, he said, this is my favorite book of the Bible. It is so practical. And so that became my favorite book of the Bible until he taught James and told us that James was now his new favorite book of the Bible. So James became my favorite new book of the Bible until I heard a preacher that was teaching through the book of Romans, and he was saying, this, this is the highest theological treatise we have in our Bible. This is one of the most uh, sustained, greatest sustained arguments of linear thought in all of Western civilization. This is the ultimate book of the Bible, and so it became my favorite book of the Bible. Until my dad was teaching on Psalms, and I realized as I'm kind of a musician and getting a beginning interest in worship, I'm thinking, wow, this, this is a book that's all about song, 150 song lyrics here. Maybe that should be my favorite book of the Bible. Until I was reading the book of John and doing a Bible study on John and seeing Jesus just presented as the Son of God, I was like, how could this not be the greatest treasure in the Bible? Until I'm leading a Bible study in Ephesians, it's like, have you read Ephesians? This is amazing. Everyone's got to read Ephesians. And I remember just, you know, as time went by, just increasingly loving the Bible, God gave me opportunity to teach the Bible once or twice a week for about a dozen years running. And so much of my Bible reading was related to my Bible teaching until I changed churches and moved to a church that we were busier with worship ministries, more responsibility, and my teaching ministries got way diminished. And as I stopped teaching regularly, you know what? I stopped reading regularly. I began to read functionally. I began to read to help me plan worship services to connect with the preaching pastor, or if I'm preaching once a quarter, I would study hard those times. Or I would preach, I would study to solve theological problems, theological issues, things that, that were conundrums to me or mysteries to me, things that I wanted to, to know and be more certain about. But as far as just reading to read, reading to enjoy God, reading to know my Lord, that began to wane and then it began to evaporate. Have you ever had a midlife crisis with? reading the Bible. Um, I think some of the things I struggled with was I knew the Bible so well. It wasn't new anymore. And I had to wonder, was I only interested in what was new, in new information? Um, 
there were some things that were hard for me. You know, some things in the Bible that some of the teachings, they're hard. Some things I, didn't, I don't understand. And those were little things when I was little. Those became big things when I got bigger, became larger issues when I got older. Um, and something about reading a verse for the day seemed kind of trite. Reading a chapter a day or, or the Bible in a year began to feel kind of rote. Um, and I'd like to, to just face what sometimes is an elephant in the room and just uh, announce if I can get this guy on that uh, sometimes reading the Bible is hard. It's just hard. Is it hard for any of you in this room? I want to ask why and engage why. Um, you know, some people, we just don't like to read, right? Anything. So why would we engage God that way if we don't like to read? Uh, for some, it's hard work. Concentrating on the words of Scripture, trying to follow places that have strange names, people that have strange names, civilizations that were thousands of years ago, trying to follow storylines, trying to follow theological arguments, trying to hold that all together. Sometimes that's, that's hard work. It takes effort. And by contrast, reading novels, reading blog posts, reading Facebook posts, it's just way easier, isn't it? It's just easier to not have to work that hard. Some of us have gotten out of a habit. We're just out of a discipline. We no longer protect a time and a place for it. We've got busy doing other things, and we just haven't protected it. It's kind of like exercising the gym. We know it's important. We know it's critical. We know it's a matter of life and death for us, and we'll get to it sometime, maybe next week, all right? But not this week. There's a reality of spiritual opposition isn't there. Whatever God loves, whatever is on the heart of the Lord, Satan opposes, and he seeks to distract us, to defeat us, to discourage us in this. And so sometimes he's got small, short-term victories, and we lose our delight in the Bible. So if we want to reclaim our delight in the Bible, if we want to pursue Bible reading again to where the Word of God has power, has impact in our lives, where we sense the presence of God with us, the power of the Holy Spirit in His Word working in us and through us. If we want to reclaim that again, it might be helpful to be recaptured by the benefits of why it's worthy of our time, why it's worthy of our attention and our intention. Um, So a few weeks ago, I thought, I want to remember why. I used to delight in the Bible more. And I just looked up a whole bunch of Scripture passages, dozens and dozens, and I'm just going to share a few of them with you. But these are some of the reasons, I think, why the Bible itself tells us it's worth spending time in uh, as we might try to recover delight in the Scriptures. So in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And I thought, you know, I... I want to be blessed. I want to experience God's blessing in my life. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I read that and I thought, I, God, I don't want to sin against you. The unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. Lord, I need your light. I want understanding. In Proverbs, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. 
Jeremiah 15, look at this. When your words came, I ate them. Wow, is that picturesque? They became my joy and my heart's delight because I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. It's because I know you, because I'm one of yours, God, that, that I want to feast on your word. I want to take it in. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, says Jesus. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the words of God and obey it. Wow, how am I going to obey it if I'm not continuously reading it and hearing it, taking it in? Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's freedom in knowing the Word of God and doing the Word of God. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Two last ones from the epistles. Hebrews 4 saying, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And from 2 Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God, I want to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We get this cumulative picture that the Word of God, it's a gift. It's a gift. It's something to delight in. It's like light that helps me to see and obey. It's like food to eat that nourishes my soul. It's like wisdom that helps me to live successfully and to please God and receive His blessings. It's the truth of God that sets me free and draws me closer to Jesus It's the Word of God that has power to penetrate into my heart and into my attitudes. It's practically useful for living a righteous life. And relationally, it's the key to abiding in Jesus and maintaining a vibrant faith. Um, If we decide, I want to be in, I want to re-engage my Bible reading, There are some less helpful ways and there are some more helpful ways. Um, Some less helpful ways of reading the Bible include viewing the Bible as an instruction manual or a reference manual. Think of when you would tend to use a reference manual. It's when you can't solve something, right? You can't do it like a piece of software and you need to refer to the manual. But once you're over the hump, once you're good to go, the manual goes back on the shelf or the PDF file gets closed and we don't refer to it, we don't reference it again, right? That's not a good model for thinking about the Bible. Um, thinking about it primarily for information. Hey, Alex, I'll take Bible geography for 500. Um, you know, it's not an accumulation of information to be good at trivia contests. That's, that's not the goal of it. It's not uh, primarily a doctrinal treatise so that we have fuel for how to sound smart or how to win debates among other Christians or among atheists. There's, there's some better and more helpful ways. And this is what we're going to be focusing on this morning. Um, but to be formed rather than informed. To read the Word relationally. To pursue the person of God. To pursue Christ, the living Word of God, as we read the printed Word of God to engage God conversationally, to actually personally interact, to have conversation, to have dialogue when we're reading, 
to even question or to react or to respond or turn our reading into prayer. We're going to talk more about that. Um, let me ask, who of you is using a, a digital Bible these days? You've got Bible version on your phone, on your tablet, your computer, yeah, and uh, great. I, um, I love, I, I use Bible Gateway all the time. I do all kinds of searches on that. I've got the U version on my phone. Use that sometimes when I'm, when I'm away. I'll uh, sometimes do study with the, the Net Bible. Are you familiar with that? Um, that's, a, that's a great version for doing studying. I'd like, though, to um, just kind of introduce some of you to, it's a retro version. It's called an analog Bible, and these are great. I love these. Um, there's all the kinds of things you can, you can like, scan through the entire book in, in just moments. Um, <laughs> There's, I, I got my version in, in color. Uh, you know, some of the uh, New Testament passages, words of Jesus, they're in red there. I've got this, this bookmark with, with texture. Uh, that's kind of cool. If you have a Kindle, you know, you're kind of limited. You can only turn the page by, like, touching the bottom right-hand corner of it, right? You press there. You know, with this Bible, I can touch anywhere. I can do the, the, the lick finger or no, no finger lick. I can go backwards. You can grab it. You, you got all kinds of options there. There's no monthly charges. Battery never runs out. Uh, if I, I don't have to buy, pay insurance on it, it's, uh, you know, if I, if I lose it and need a new one, it's just like 30 bucks. So anyway, I just love to reacquaint you with analog Bible. It's awesome. The best thing about it is writing your own notes in it and having a history of what God has done in your heart. Favorite Bible I ever owned was in Bible college. They gave us NIVs that were brand new at the time, and it had almost inch and a half margins on each side. I used that Bible for the next 10 years, and I have like a 10-year record of my spiritual life in that Bible. You can take away all my Bibles, but you cannot take away that one. That one's priceless to me. Um, I, uh, anyway, I'd love to uh, just encourage you to, uh, to, to keep using one like this as well. Um, the last few weeks, I've been trying to develop what I want to call a transformative approach to Scripture reading. There's four ways to read the Bible that we're going to be looking at. And I want to say that this has been personally revitalizing for me. There has been a bit of a renaissance in my Bible reading. So I'm, I'm three weeks in. I've missed like one day a week. But the, the reality is it's been a long time for me since I have looked forward to reading the next day. Um, I'm struggling with boundaries right now because I, I plan X amount of time and I tend to be exceeding my boundaries each day. And it's like, oh no, I need to stop and I need to get back to other, other work or other things or get into work. Um, but I, I encourage you to, um, that, that if you've got if you've got a Bible reading approach or plan that is working for you, don't let this mess you up unless there's aspects of this that you would want to integrate. But for any of you in the room that you feel like, okay, Bible reading has kind of gotten away from me. I'm not currently engaged in a plan or a process. I'd like to restart. Could you help me? That's what today's about. So here's four ways to read the Bible that I hope can be transformative for you. It has been for me. Um, the key thing, a key thing, is not to try to bite off too much. Take a manageable amount, maybe just a paragraph, maybe a half a chapter, and guide it through this approach. Um, the first step is to read informationally. Why would we do this? It's to know what's happening. It's to know, it's to know what's going on. 
Um, this is to know the story. And as you read, you're going to make observations. You're going to be just try to observe what are common words here? What are themes here? What seems to be important to the Scripture writer? Who's writing? Who's talking? Who are they addressing? What's the context? Those kind of things. You want to know the story. You want to know what happened. You want to notice things. And you'll know that you know it well if you can paraphrase it. And I have found this so helpful that I'll do a read-through. I'll start observing and noticing things on another read-through and then I'll close my Bibles and I'll see if I can paraphrase what's going on. And if I can't, then I'll open back up and peek, oh, I forgot that or I missed that. And when I get done with that process, I feel like, okay, I know Luke chapter 10, the first half of it or the first paragraph of it. And, and, I, and, and I have that confidence that I know what's happening, what's going on there. Um, I want to say this isn't an amazing goal so far. It's just a starting point. It's actually even problematic, perhaps, because there's a danger of knowledge in that Scripture itself tells us knowledge puffs up. Knowledge can lead us to pride. And so knowledge is never enough. It's just the starting point. We can't skip this step, but it's not the, the end-all, be-all. Um, so I want to say all the good stuff is still in front of us. Step two, phase two here, is to read theologically. What do I mean by that? Read for the truth. What is God teaching? First we read for information. What, is it, what, is it, what does it say? What's happening? This is what does it mean? How do I interpret this? I want to understand. So this is reading to, to understand what we're, what we're reading. Um, what's the point here? So where is this in the flow of Scripture. Is this to the nation of Israel? Is this when they were in the land? Is this when they were exiled? Is this in the time of Jesus when He's with His disciples before the cross? Is this to the early church after the cross? Is this looking forward to us? Where, where in the Bible story does this passage of Scripture land? Because that makes a big difference in how we interpret what's going on. Is this passage teaching me anything doctrinally that would be helpful for me to know? Theologically, in the development of Scripture, is this passage of Scripture alluding to something that came before? Is there prophetic fulfillment that's happening in this, prophecy, in this passage of Scripture? Or is even this portion of Scripture leading to something else where there's going to be fulfillment later? Is this preparatory toward something else, or is this a kind of a final word on a topic? Um, are there things that I don't understand? Am I just maybe going to flag this and say, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I'll have to come back to this later, perhaps. Um, the essence here is to, to be confronted with the truth of God's Word. This is really what God's Word is teaching, as far as I can understand. This is what it means. And the key is that I don't merely know what God's Word says. The key here is that I believe it. This is God's truth, and I'm owning it. Um, I'm going to live by this. So this kind of reading is a form of Bible study, basic Bible study. The advantage is that hopefully we interpret the Bible correctly. Hopefully we get the intended meaning of, of the text that we're reading. It's really important that we don't misuse or abuse Scripture here. Um, what's the advantage of this? Well, this is a great way to defend ourselves from the enemy, from Scripture twisters. 
to, keep, to give us a good handle on God's Word, a good grasp of God's Word for ourselves so that we're not prey to any infectious, charismatic speaker who might be twisting our ear to make the Bible say something that it's not really saying, or someone who is immature, or someone who is a passionate legalist. Um, it gives us a solidity of saying, no, I'm standing on the Word of God because I know it, I understand it, and I'm firm with it. But a danger here is that we can love this step too much. And I would say I have historically loved this step too much. The problem is that we can try to spend all of our time here. We can, like, buy a plot of land here, build a house here, buy food and continue to feast here doing all kinds of cross-referencing, commentaries, word studies, uh, using this as, as a launching point, and love study too much. And the, what we can sometimes do, and my fear of, of many Bible study approaches, is that we can study a passage of Scripture to learn it, and then we study the next passage of Scripture to learn it, and then study the next passage of Scripture to learn it. And then we're done with our Bible study. So we look for a new Bible study to study our a passage of Scripture to learn it and to learn it and to learn it. And then the next one, to learn, to learn, to learn. And I want to say that as valuable as this is, this is only step two, and the best stuff is still ahead. The best stuff is still to come. We should never stop at step two. Here's where the money is. This is the heart of things. Step three, to read relationally. This is where we move from reading words in a text to meeting personally with God. This is where everything changes. This is the pinnacle. This is the rose in full bloom, we might say. This is the climax. This is the step of Bible reading that I have largely missed or diminished for, for a long, long time. This is the aspect that I've been intentionally re-pursuing and spending the most time in in recent weeks and find it to be invigorating. Uh, this is where I'm getting the most fruitfulness, the most strength. This is where our time in the Word transcends the text and it moves us into, into interacting with our Lord. Um, this is where we pursue a relationship with Jesus. This is where we pursue a dialogue. We read through, and we're asking different questions. We're saying, God, would you show me about yourself here? If we're reading about Jesus, Jesus, where are you revealing the character of my Father here? Um, God, I'm confused by this. I got a couple questions on this. Uh, or maybe like the psalmist even railing at God, saying, this isn't fair, this isn't right, it seems like the enemies are winning and you don't care. God, where are you when I need you? Or coming to something and say, this blows my mind. God, if I were you, I wouldn't do it this way. Here's how I would do it, God, if I were you. God, I realize your ways are higher than mine. My brain is small and I don't understand, but I want to. Would you help me? Or I see God's heart of grace and His compassion, and I'm overwhelmed, and it moves me to praise. It moves me to thanksgiving. It moves me to gratitude. It moves me to worship. Or I'm seeing God calling the people of God to something, and I realize I'm not doing it 
And it brings me to a place of conviction. But I see it flowing from the, from the heart of God and from who He is. So it opens up conversation with God. It's not only truth, it's a person. It's not only information, it's, it's a revelation of God. Pursuing time with my Lord. It's like God is pulling back the curtain at this stage, inviting us backstage, saying, let's, let's sit down for coffee. Let's talk about this. And we engage, actually have conversation with God. Um, if you don't feel like God is near, if you don't feel like you experience the presence of God when you're reading your Bible, I'm going to guess that you're missing this aspect, that this is what's gone astray. Is that you're reading only for information or you're reading only for theology or doctrine. You're missing the most valuable part of engaging your Lord and of seeing God and knowing God and, and communicating with God through His Word. Uh, I just want to say that if you put time in here, I can promise you that your times in the Word are going to be rich. They're going to be different. Uh, the fourth thing is more of just the natural follow-through. This is to read responsively. Um, this isn't an add-on. This is just the closure. This is when the Bible becomes personal. Imagine a man asking the woman of his dreams to marry him. Will you marry me? And he waits. And the response never comes. Like, what's wrong with this picture? Or imagine hearing a Beethoven symphony at the Hollywood Bowl, and you've got this amazing, incredible climax at the end, and at the end you've got nothing. Silence. Imagine watching War Room or Schindler's List and not talking to anybody after it, not processing your thoughts with anybody. See, there's something about spending time with God's Word that demands a response. It's not enough just to take it in. If we haven't responded to it, if we haven't talked about it, if we haven't enacted something, if we haven't done something, it's not complete. Something isn't right with that picture. So when we've been impacted by God's truth, and we've known the nearness of God's presence, it's just natural to respond. We have to respond to it. This is the reading where transformation happens. So um, in this fourth step, this fourth time of going through the Scripture passage, we're, we're asking God, God, what do you want me to do with this? God, how should I respond to you in this? God, is there something in me that needs to change? How should I now think? How should I now act? How should I now worship does this prompt me to be amazed at God's grace? Does this prompt me to want to serve somebody? Does this prompt me to confess a sin, to change, to love, to take a bold stand on something, to take a risk in ministry? How can I remember this Scripture and let it take root in my life where it will have impact for days and weeks to come? See, it's not merely just the Bible or God's truth out there. This becomes God's Word to me to my life, to my heart, and it should impact me, it should change me, it should cause me to do something, to respond in some way. I should be different than I was before. Um, this is where 
the Word of God gets into me and works through me. Apologies to Francis Chan. Um, I heard him tell a story similar to this, but imagine you're planning an evening with your child and you're going to have dinner and go out to a concert with your child and you know you're going to be at work a little bit late and so you need your child to help you with dinner. So you write a note and you say, hey, love you. I'm really looking forward to spending time with you tonight, but I need your help. I'm not going to be home till about six o'clock, but could you do this? Could you turn on the oven at five o'clock to 350 degrees? And then could you take the lasagna out of the refrigerator and put it in at 510? And then I'll be home at six and we'll eat and we'll go out to the concert. Love, Dad. So day goes by and you come home at a few minutes till six o'clock and you walk in the house and the kitchen lights are out. The oven is off, and you open up the refrigerator door, and you can't believe it. The lasagna is still there in the refrigerator. Hey! Call your child upstairs. Hey, come down here. They come on down. Hey, Dad, what's up? Say, hey, did did you get the note that I left you? Oh, yeah, I got it. Did did you read it? Oh, yeah, I read it twice. Did, Did you understand it? Oh, yeah, I, uh, I, I even memorized part of it. You, you memorized part. I did. What part did you memorize? Oh, the part that you said, at 5 o'clock, turn on the oven to 350 degrees, and at 510, take the lasagna out of the refrigerator and put it in the oven. I memorized that part. I said, you, you, you memorized it, but, but you didn't do it? He's like, did you want me to do it? I just thought you wanted me to read it and know what you said. No, no, I wanted you to do it, and I wanted to spend time with you. And we say, this is kind of ludicrous, except we do this all the time with the Bible, don't we? We read it, we memorize parts of it, and then we read more and we memorize parts of it, and we read more and we memorize parts of it. And God is saying, I want you to do it, and I want to spend time with you. Are we doing the Word? Are we pursuing relationship with God through the Word? Or are we just reading it and memorizing it? Um, I want to guide you through these four steps with a real-life passage to kind of show what this could look like. Go ahead and turn in your Bible to what I think is a very familiar passage for, for many of you. This is Luke 15. This will be coming up in a few months. I'm not going to steal the thunder from the whole passage, but um, Luke 15, go ahead and turn there. And by the way, everything I've gone through is in your sermon notes second page, kind of the, the backside of your sermon notes, these four uh, steps of Bible reading. So if, if this is helpful to you and you'd like to take it home with you, you've got it in hard copy there. So I'm going to be just kind of going through this in a, in a real passage of, of how this could look. Um, So Luke chapter 15, there's three parables in this passage, and we're going to be just looking at the first two that are short, and again, saving uh, saving the last one. So the first thing we would do here is read through for information. Um, Generally, what I'm doing is I'll read through it, do a quick read through to see what's going on, and then I'll come back and do a second read through of, of observing things and noticing things. I'm just going to combine those two steps right now. Um, 
but so here it starts. So chapter 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So already I'm observing some things. There's, there's two groups of people, mixed groups, hearing Jesus speak. There's tax collectors and sinners that are drawing near him, and there's there's Pharisees and teachers of the law who are apparently very concerned about that, and they're criticizing Jesus for, uh, for welcoming sinners and eating with them. Now, verse 3, it says, Jesus told them this parable. And again, because I've looked ahead, I can tell you he's actually going to tell them three parables. Here's the first one, verse 4. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. So as I'm looking at that, I see that there's a shepherd. He's got a hundred sheep. He loses one. And he's doing whatever it takes to... Uh, to go find this one. And then he finds it, he puts it on his shoulder, he brings it home, and he calls everybody he knows to rejoice with him. Um, and then Jesus is using this as an analogy to say there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 persons who don't need to repent. Um, and then verse 8, it says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So we have a a very similar parable here, and this time it's a woman. She's got 10 instead of 100. She's got coins instead of sheep, but she loses one. Same thing. She's going to turn the house upside down, do whatever it takes until she finds this lost thing, this lost coin. And then when she does, she tells everybody she knows, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, Jesus says, there's rejoicing in heaven whenever one sinner comes to repentance. So after reading it, after kind of noticing things, being observant of what's going on, they don't want to paraphrase it. So Jesus is teaching. There's sinners and tax collectors around. There's also Pharisees and teachers of the law who don't like that there are sinners and tax collectors around and they're critiquing Jesus. And in response to that, he's going to share three parables. In both parables, he's talking about someone who's got something, someone who's picturing God who loses one thing. So there's a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. He loses one. There's a woman who has ten coins. She loses one. In both cases, they're going to do whatever it takes, turn over every stone, look as far as it, as it requires until they find the one that is precious to them, the sheep or the coin that was lost. And they invite everybody to celebrate and rejoice with them And that Jesus is saying, this points to my Father in heaven and how he looks at lost people. So now it's like, okay, I think I've got Luke chapter 15, the first 10 verses. I paraphrase it. I understand what's going on in that. Got the information about that. So now I want to read theologically. I want to read for truth. What am I supposed to do with that information? What's the point of it? How does that matter? to me. 
what should I understand about, about God or about the world or about myself through this? Well, what are some things here? They're, they're making the same point in each parable. God and angels rejoice when one lost sinner repents. That seems to be a big deal to God, that when a sinner repents, God and His angels are rejoicing in heaven. Um, I'm thinking theologically time-wise here. This is Old Covenant. This is Israel. This is before the cross. In the lost sheep and the lost coins, notice they've lost something that already belongs to them. It's not someone else's sheep. They're not trying to expand the fold. It's not accruing additional money, additional coins. It's a coin that she already owned. These are people that already were part of God's sheepfold. These people, the lost people, were already considered part of the people of God, part of the redeemed nation of Israel, people that God considered His own. And who's Jesus referencing here? Well, He's referencing the sinners and the tax collectors, those that the religious leaders have said, they're outside the camp, don't waste your time on them. No, Jesus is saying, no, they belong to my Father. They matter to Him. Wow, that seems significant. But we live after the cross. We're not part of Israel. We, we're part of the church. What does that mean for us? Well, God was working with Israel. Now He's working with the whole world, and it seems to be a priority of God to reach the disobedient, to reach the lost of every people group, of every language group, of every nation. Oh, wow, that seems theologically important. Um, any Scripture lead to this, or does this lead us to any Scripture? We might be aware that just four chapters later, Jesus is speaking not just generally to sinners or generally to tax collectors, but to a very specific sinner and tax collector named Zacchaeus. And he gets invited into his home, not just eating with him, but dining and, and living and experiencing the fullness of hospitality with him. And it says in Luke 19, two things. One is that Zacchaeus comes to faith in Christ. He becomes a child of Abraham. And then in, in the next verse, Jesus clarifies why he came, what his mission was about. He says that I came to seek and to save those who were lost. And so we see in Luke chapter 15, this is a setup for what God is going to confirm through Jesus in Luke chapter, 15, chapter 19. The very reason Jesus came was to save lost sinners. The very thing that the Pharisees are accusing him of and saying, don't waste your time, we can't trust you because you're hanging out with the wrong people, Jesus is establishing right now through example and later through specific teaching, this is exactly why I've come. This is hugely theologically significant and important for us to understand. But again, the best stuff is still ahead, all right? best stuff is still ahead. Now we're going to read it for relationship. I'm just going to kind of work through it again and asking questions. What, what do I see here about Jesus? What do I see here about God and His character? So I'm looking from the beginning, and I'm seeing that Jesus is being accused of welcoming sinners and eating with them. Seeing a couple things there. One is Jesus has a compassion he seems to be having particular eyes for the down and out, for the needy. He's living in a way that invites them. 
that ingratiates himself to them, that includes them. What can I say about the heart of Jesus there? Very compassionate, loving heart, concern for the least of these, eating with them, even to the degree of receiving flack and criticism from the so-called religious leaders. Wow, there's a boldness there. There's a courageousness there to go against the grain, to go against the flow that I see there in Jesus. Jesus tells a parable to speak to the Pharisees. Oh, he's even got an approach to how he deals with opposition. He's not slamming them. He's using his imagination. I see Jesus as imaginative here. He's not coming out all condemning to the people or arguing with them. He's trying to be creative enough to show a picture that might cause them to rethink things. Wow. Um, As he's presenting the heart of God here, notice that he's saying the shepherd, picturing God here, leaves the 99 in the open country to go after the lost sheep until he finds it. There's there's this intensity here. It's like um, a relentlessness here. He's, he's, he's going out on a rescue mission, God going out on a rescue mission with a relentless fervency for the one and trusting that the 99 are okay. It's like, wow, that really tells me something about God's character, about God's heart, about God's values and His priorities. And then notice this, when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder. Look at the care that God is displaying for this sheep. Rescuing it, putting it on his shoulder, carrying it in, bringing it back to the fold. A God of care, a God of love, a God of gentleness. And he does this joyfully. Do I think of God as a joyful God? Is that a primary characteristic that I think of my Father in heaven? God, you are joyful. In fact, You're so joyful that then you invite everybody to rejoice with you. It's like he's calling all of the angels, come rejoice with me. Come celebrate with me. Joyfully rejoice, more rejoicing. Is that my picture of God? Or do I have a picture of God that is stern or harsh or something else? When I think of God, is this a chief lens through which I see Him? He is my rejoicing Father, my celebrative God who wants other people to join into the celebration. And the second parable just highlights it again. We've got two witnesses of the same thing, that God is a celebrative God. And then I want to personalize this, put myself into the story. God, there was a time that I was lost. I was like a lost sheep. There was a time when I was like a lost coin, God, did you really relentlessly pursue me? God, when I couldn't find my way, when I didn't understand truth, did you actually send Jesus to come after me? And when I was a boy who prayed and asked you to forgive my sins, and I came into your family, God, are you telling me that you rejoiced in heaven, that you had a party, so to speak, and asked all the angels to celebrate with you about me coming into your family. Really, God? You have that kind of love for me? Do you see how this changes things? See, I have a picture that came to my mind of, like, imagine the Super Bowl football game, and the owner of the team is up in the skybox, 
The winning touchdown is thrown, and the guy's just into the end zone. All of the headgear comes off. Everyone's celebrating. Arms are in the air. People are jumping. They're giving hugs to each other, high fives to each other. The champagne is coming out, and they're celebrating up in the skybox. Does God really do that with angels when, when lost people come to him? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Now I want to ask, if so, what does God want me to do about that? How does this engage me? So I look at it again and think, where, what do I do with this? God, God, how do you want me to respond to this? What's, what's my place in this? I have to ask, am I more like Jesus or am I more like the Pharisee? Oh, man. When is the last time that I have been accused by other religious leaders of hanging out with the wrong kind of people? When have religious people complained about me that too frequently I'm having undesirable people in my home or being seen in public out for coffee or something with the wrong sort? And people are wondering about my faith or about my spirituality because I'm with sinners. I think, well, boy, in our culture today, who's even identified as a sinner? It's not tax collectors probably anymore. Who, when private talk is happening behind closed doors in whispers, who gets grouped and called names in our culture? Well, Maybe Mormons, maybe Muslims, maybe atheists, maybe illegal immigrants, maybe liberals, maybe who knows, right? But think about this. The people that Trump has called losers and the people that Hillary has called deplorables and the people that Pharisees called sinners These are the same people that Jesus pursued as friends. And I have to ask myself, am I pursuing them as friends? Or God, do you need to change my heart? God, do you need to change my calendar? God, do you need to change my relational priorities? That kind of life change comes out of this kind of time in God's Word. When we read God's Word relationally, when we're committed to respond to it, it becomes a gift again. It becomes God's Word to delight in. So my encouragement to you is, if reading has become dull, if God has seemed far, if your reading is not invigorating right now, I encourage you to join me in going through this four-step process. I'm three weeks in. Um, I decided to just pick up the story in Luke. So we preached through chapter 9. I started in chapter 10. You might go back to chapter 3. Um, we've got some people at Whittier Hills that are reading along in Luke uh, to try to catch up with and then get ahead of the sermon series. Start somewhere. But I hope this will be encouraging to you, and I hope God will meet with you and change your heart through this. Uh, Joe, I'm going to turn things back to you.